0: All right, um, hey, we're in First Samuel 19, First Samuel 19. Let me explain. We're making our way through this book. Um, man, we're already in 19. <laughs> we are going to be looking at the life of David for a while. Uh, David is the most acknowledged and talked about person in not just like biblical literature, but like ancient literature. He's talked about more than any figure outside of Jesus as far as the scriptures go. There's uh, 66, I think, references of him. In the New Testament, Um, he's constantly mentioned. uh, There's story after story of David, his life, his journey. We're about to see David go on this journey of being pursued by Saul, who's the current king. A lot is talked about King David. Now, we're in chapter 19, but here's where we're at. Chapter 16, David's introduced as that shepherd boy who's anointed to be king. He's spirit-filled. He's a worshiper. He's a warrior. Chapter 17, David slays Goliath. Chapter 18, the women are literally singing David's praise in the streets. They're like, Saul has slain thousands, but David tens of thousands, and that made uh, Saul incredibly jealous. We see that Saul in chapter 18, last week, we saw that he tried to throw a spear and kill David twice. Uh, the, 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 The friendship is a little rocky between Saul and David, and we see really kind of this uh, this journey now between Saul's pursuit of David. Now we're about to enter, not yet, but we're about to enter once we get to 21, like this 10 to 15 years most likely, of David's life of just running from Saul. David is the anointed king; he's the next king; he's the expectant king, and yet he's running and fleeing for his life. And in this kind of journey here in chapter 19 and 20, we're going to see that God brought David some very close friends along the way, some very loyal friends that basically helps sustain him through these deep, dark valleys. Imagine someone's pursuing you. Imagine someone's trying to take your life. Like, who are you going to go to? Who are you going to run to? And we're going to see between David, as we saw last week, we kind of scratched the surface, between David and Jonathan, it's probably the most extensive relationship we see in scriptures, like a, the most extensive friendship talked about David and Jonathan. We're going to see David's wife mention Michael. We're going to see Samuel mention. But David has some friends along this journey. Now, bear with me. We are going to go through chapter 19 and 20 today. I know you can do it. No, you can do it. You can do it, guys. All right. Um, but and I'll, I'll keep the pace going a little bit, just so you know. It's probably more like it's a narrative. It's more of a story. We'll kind of read some big chunks and then summarize. But what we really do see here and what my prayer has been, not just, it's not just how do we have a, a lengthy Bible study. It's not what it's about. My prayer, though, is like as we look at 19 and 20, there, this really is an example of how to do friendships this is an example for us of like how to, how to basically be with someone at their lowest point in life. My hope and prayer for, for all of us is that we kind of get past that surface level of relationships and that you'd really know others and others would know you. Maybe you just come to church or you tried the small group thing, you tried some of the friendship thing, you're like, eh. But my prayer is like, God, break that today. Show us through the life of Jonathan and David specifically. What does a true friend look like? How do you walk through those dark moments of life together? The title today is simple, uh, just friends when you need them the most. Friends when you need them the most. We're going to look at five key characteristics, I think, that defines their friendship, because it's not just about friendship, but what is the friendship about? What does it revolve around? And um, yeah, I'm excited to do this because, again, I think more than ever, um, when we're isolated and alone, when you kind of just do life on your own, when no one really knows you, it's a dangerous place to be in when you feel like no one can speak into you or challenge you or you can't do that for someone else, that's not a great place. It's not a healthy place to be in. So I'm just gonna pray pray that God just opens our eyes to this and that we'd honestly just learn through this, like not just knowledge, but God like help us be people that pursues deep and meaningful relationships. Yes, yes. All right, let's pray. Father, we just wanna thank you for this opportunity we get to, to open your word. God, we ask that you would speak. Our hearts are expectant, God. We expect for you to speak to us. God, we ask for you to move. Lord, I just pray that um, if no one really knows us, if there's a few different versions of us, that Jesus, that would be wiped away today. That we would um, be known and know others. That Jesus, we would be able to enter into deep and meaningful relationships. God, would you just bless everyone in this room? God, I just ask that um, there are certain mindsets or strongholds or excuses we can make on this topic. And Lord, I just pray that it would not just be about friendship for the sake of friendship, but that there'd be growth, that we'd abide in you, Jesus, that we'd have a friend that's closer than a brother, someone to spur us on to love and good works. God, I just ask that you would just uh, let the church be the church. There'd be so much more than sitting next to someone but God, that you would um, just develop and create some lifelong friendships that get us through, through these dark moments that I know we all will face. So we just ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. You know, um, I think I'm tempted, probably like you, more, by more, more and more every day, that I want like a, a big picture of my life. Like, where am I going God, what's going to happen next month, next year, five years, ten years? Like, sometimes in, in my prayer life, there's this desire or temptation. Like, I just want to know what's ahead of me. I want to know what's next. But at the same time, I feel like the more I do live my life, the more I'm very thankful God has not revealed to me what's next month or next year or five years or ten years. I think the Lord knows, like, I can't handle it. Like, you can't handle it. I think more and more, I'm just encouraged. By, like, when I was younger, I really wanted to know, like, my future. I really want to know, like, God, what's ahead. And I think as I get older, again, I'm like settling into, like, Lord, day by day. Because I, I can't handle, I think, everything that would be before me. You know, if I knew some of the things that were ahead of me before I walked into them, I probably would not have done them. Like, I'm very thankful God's like, hey, this is actually, like, if, if, if God revealed to me what was ahead of, my, of me in my future, I'd probably be like, you know, I'm good where I'm at. I'm good, right? Uh, at the same time, if there are some things I actually kind of blew up in my mind, there are some moments in my life I'm like, this is going to be really hard. This is going to be really tough. And like, I was afraid to walk through that door. But as soon as I walked through that door, I'm like, wait, the Lord has been with me. That's not as hard as I thought. And I would have missed out on these like, moments where I had to display faith, where I had to walk through the door. The Lord had to show up. If, if I knew it was going to be easy, I'd probably just not appreciate it. Like, it's very interesting. David, I believe, is an example. For us, he has to take his life day by day. Like, think about this. David is anointed king. And he's literally about to be pursued for like 10 to 15 years of his life. Hiding in caves, writing psalms, like people out to get always looking over his shoulder. I mean, if David knew that day when Samuel came to anoint him, if he just thought, awesome, Samuel anointed me, I'm the next king, I, I really soon after that slayed Goliath, like, this is pretty epic. This is great. But if he knew, like, all the things, that, like, if he knew spears were going to be thrown at him, men were going to be pursuing him, he'd have to hide. Like, if he knew that, like, would he have wanted that anointing or taken on that anointing? My, my point, and Jesus said it best, right, in Matthew six thirty-four. Jesus says, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Like, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus talks about this idea, like, I don't, we couldn't handle it. I don't think David could have handled it. If David knew everything that was in front of him, he'd be like, you know what, I'll pass this anointing thing, right? Like, he's about, he is anointed king, and he's about to go on a long journey fleeing for his life. And here's the thing, thankfully, God has brought him some very key friendships to survive these pits, to survive these low moments, You know, don't forget, David's name just simply means beloved or beloved. That's what David means. David is really beloved. Think about this. The people love him. Michael loves him. Jonathan loves him. God loves him. Like David's really loved. Saul hates him, but David has some really good friends. David also is really loved. And I want to actually point this out. I think sometimes before we just move on, we need to remember like our name. You need to know that over and over again in the New Testament, God calls you beloved. He calls you David. He calls you beloved, beloved, beloved beloved, beloved, beloved. There's this term over us, like you need to know you are loved. You need to know that you're going to have some enemies who want to pursue you. You're going to have some valleys. You're going to have some low moments, but don't forget that you are David. You are beloved. Don't forget that you have some people that God has placed in your life that you can call upon, that you do not have to do this alone. But most importantly, you have God of the universe who's for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And there's this idea that David's like, David, you are beloved. You're about to go on a crazy journey but you're going to have deep and meaningful friendships. People stick up for you, fight with you, join you. You are beloved, David. And here's the thing. As we just kind of walk through a lot of text today, as we walk through this, I do want us to kind of see some just, what what do healthy and biblical friendships look like? And um, what are some qualities we can take away from this? Specifically between Jonathan and David, but what, what do these qualities look like? What does uh, this type of relationship and friendship look like? Uh, here's a few points. We're going to see in chapter 19, simply loyal friends. We're going to see vulnerable friends, humble friends, kindred friends, I'll explain that, and selfless friends. As we walk through our text today, and maybe you've never had a friend like this, like a Jonathan. Maybe you've never been a friend to someone else like this. Maybe you always wanted it you've never been like this to someone else. My hope is that the God would produce loyalty, vulnerability, humility, that this common belief, common vision, this kindredness, and this selfless kind of friendship. Yes? Amen? So let's walk through this. Uh, We're going to see the first one, loyal friends. All right, loyal friends. Chapter 19, verse 1. Let's read our text today. It says, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, Saul spoke to his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you, for he took his life in his hand and struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And listen, and Saul, he listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, which he never keeps his oaths or swearing. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David. Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul. They're back together. And he was in his presence as before. All right, in chapter 19, there's going to be three friendships revealed. Jonathan, Michael, David's wife, and Samuel. We're going to see all of them be just loyal friends to David. Verse 1 through 7, we're going to see specifically Jonathan be incredibly loyal. Now, I want you to understand what's happening here. Jonathan just committed treason to his dad, right? He's like, we need to kill David. Jonathan, verse 2, he reports that David, hey, my dad wants to kill you. You should hide. Hide till morning. But he goes. I'm also going to like be an inter- I'm going to be a mediator. I'm going to go talk to my dad. And, and Jonathan makes a great argument. He's like, he's never sinned against you. He slayed Goliath. Like, come on, Dad. He's like, okay, I'll listen to. You. And he, he listens to him for this one moment. And but Jonathan is incredibly loyal. I mean, think about taking this information, the secret information, not going to David and be like, David, my dad wants to kill you. Jonathan is putting his life on the line by committing treason by telling David this. My point, obviously, and this is pretty simple. Um, loyalty is rare but it's incredibly valuable, and it's key in deep friendships. Now, I, I want to kind of paint the picture a little bit more, but Proverbs 17, or 17, 17, says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times. You see, when it comes to, I think, friendships, relationships, I don't want to talk about this blind loyalty, because we're going to see them call each other out and, like, invite them to speak into each other's lies, I like, guess they're sinning me. It's not this blind loyalty, but there is a, lo- a brother loves at all times, or a friend loves at all times. There is something about loving someone where it's not conditional, it's not at all, at all times. It's not if you do this, then I will be faithful. Then I'll love you. It's not because you're this, I love you. A friend loves at all times. It's very important in healthy friendship that there is loyalty, not blind loyalty, but saying like, hey, I'm there, like I'm there for you. I'll stick my neck out for you. I mean, this is incredibly rare. Uh, This is something that Eugene Peterson wrote about. And I I thought it was profound. He said, listen to this. He says, friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It's every bit as significant as prayer and fasting. Like the sacramental use of water in baptism and bread and wine in communion, friendship, listen to this, friendship takes what's common and turns it into something holy. You think about like bread, you think about water, you think about that like, in a sense, whether it's baptism or communion, something common, but it's holy, it's sacred, it's set apart, water, bread. He goes, friendship is the same idea. It's common, but when, when done right, when done well, it's holy. There's something special about this. There's something, at all, there's something special when a friend loves you at all times, like, hey, I see you in your deepest, darkest moments, and I'm there. I'm with you. It's not like you reveal or open up your heart and you're like, wow, I can't believe that was in you. That's disgusting and gross. I don't know if I should even be around you. Like, it's hard. Like, I think some of us are afraid to be open and vulnerable and honest because we're like, how will they receive me? How will they take me in? Jonathan was loyal. He he knows these moments. He's putting his life on the line. He's he's risking it. He's loyal at all times. I think loyalty is something that is lost and something that is key. It's like, I know there's mutual trust between us. I know that's not going to be broken. I know that I don't have a desire to break it. You don't have a desire to break it. This is a beautiful thing we got going. Proverbs 18:24 says, "A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother." Listen, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I I actually tell my son this verse a lot, right? Because he's at that age where it's like, he's like, dad, this person's beating me at school. I'm like, well, are you being friendly? If you want friends, you gotta be friendly, right? And that's probably terrible parenting. But I'm like, hey, like sometimes it's not someone else's fault. Like if you want to have friends, you gotta be friendly. You gotta put yourself in this situation. It's crazy how important this is for us today. You know, there's so many articles written about this, but we know that healthy friendships also leads to like just a healthier lifestyle whether that's mental health, physical health, there's so many things that say, man, when, you ha- when someone's surrounded by deep friendships, the communities around the world that like, live the longest, one of the key things that um, is between all of them is they have deep and meaningful friendships. There's just something about friendships that I also feel like maybe we don't either value, we don't see it as holy, we, don't, like, we, we have it, then we move on to someone else, we have it, we move on to someone else. It's really sad, I'm not saying that you can't have a lot of friends. I'm not, but I feel like our generation, like because of social media, because of certain things, like we're in someone's life for six months at a time, move on to someone else. We get bored with them. That's not a friendship. It's loyalty looks different it's at all times. I'm not saying it's to be that with everyone always, but there has to be a couple key people in your life who are like, hey, nothing's off limits. Let's kind of explore this together. You see, this was a healthy thing they have going. Now, we're going to see that's between uh, Jonathan and David. Now next, just because the text, there's a lot of text, we're going to keep going. We're going to see Michael now, his, David's wife, stand up and be loyal to David. So we saw Jonathan's loyalty. Let's look at Michael, Michael's loyalty. Uh, verse 8. Keep reading with me. Verse 8. Verse 8. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came came upon Saul. This is the third time we see this. As he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. <laughs> and David was playing the liar. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. Listen to that phrase. I want to pin that guy to the wall, right? Uh, but he eluded Saul. So David gets away. So that he struck the spear into the wall. I mean, that is a hard throw. I think about how hard that throw is. Like he throws it so hard, it just sticks to the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. So Jonathan stood up for him. It didn't last very long. Verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down the window, and he fled and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed, and put a pillow of goats' hair at its head, and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, uh, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Michael, David's wife, and also this is Saul's daughter, Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Which is obviously a lie. All right, um, here's the idea. We see Michael his wife being incredibly loyal to him. We see kind of this makeshift thing of like you know fake little dummy in the bed. I don't know if you're a teenager like you did that. You sneak out of the house like you put I don't know something in the bed. That's kind of what she did. There's goat's hair. It's flowing like okay. There's probably some sort of quote of honor commentators talk about like why didn't they go in and kill themselves? Maybe they're not gonna kill a sick man. But Saul's like bring the sick man to me. I'll kill him myself. And then you know he goes why did you lie to me? She goes no no he made me do this or he'd kill me. All right so here's what we see. We see Jonathan helping and we see Michael his wife scheming. But here's what's really interesting to me. We actually. Get some insight into this exact story in psalm 59 so you have jonathan helping michael scheming and david's praying in psalm 59 we have a psalm that either david wrote that night or the next day i think he wrote that night in my opinion but it's really beautiful if you would you can turn to psalm 59 uh, i want you to see this yourself because now we're going to enter into the journey as we read through the samuels where we get to see david's like insights into these moments i love there's a little window in david's like soul in a specific moment at a specific time so in psalm 59 you can turn there read it with me but I love this. At the top of the psalm, uh, it, a lot of times it gives us like the history or the context. You'll see this in Psalm 59. We'll put it up here, but you can also see it in your Bible. So if you want, you can turn the pages. I hopefully, I can hear Bibles pages turning. Uh, it says, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David, it's maybe a type of song, type of uh, music being played, uh, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. So David wrote Psalm 59 when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Now, I want you to read this, this story. Remember, David's like hiding. This is really interesting how she's going to let her husband out through the window. There's kind of flashbacks of Rahab letting the spies out through the window uh, in the city of Jericho. There's also like future, you know, Saul will be escaped through a window. Saul who became Paul escapes through a window. Uh, it's just a really interesting kind of thing. So she lets her husband through this window, but here's what we see. We, she see She's like scheming. She's planning. She's like, I'm, I'm trying to protect you. But we see David just praying. And I want us to hear David's heart, because I feel like this is too valuable to just pass. I don't want to like, move on from this. Psalm 59, verse 1. Here's what David prays or writes during this time. He says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine... O oh Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations; spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Say, stop and meditate. is what he says. You kind of hear his language, like, Lord, they're, they're ch- these bloodthirsty men. They lie in wait. They're chasing after me. Look, if you would, at verse nine, he says. O oh, my strength, I will watch for you. Uh, for you, O oh God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Verse 16, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praise to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. The God who shows, my stead, shows me steadfast love. Here's what I love about this. He talks about the morning. David has such a hope. I I know I'll see the morning light. Like, remember, she's like, stay there. Let me me get out of the window. But David has this hope. I'm going to see the morning. His steadfast love will bring me through this moment. You, oh my God, you, my Lord, you're my strength. There's such a hope in David in this moment. I wouldn't know this if I just read 1 Samuel 19 on my own. I'm very thankful for Psalm 59. I'm very thankful that you have like, yes, Jonathan's helping. Yes, Michael's helping. But you really see what David goes. My help comes from you, God. You're my strength. You're my help. I'm going to see the morning light. That's my hope. My hope is that this is not the end. David, again, had such unique trust in difficult moments. So you see Jonathan, you see Michael. We're going to move on now to Samuel. Just because, again, time, let's keep going. Uh, Verse 18, let's pick back up. Verse 18, it says, Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel. We haven't seen Samuel for a while, right? Uh, At Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naioth." And it was told Saul, behold, David at Nioth in Ramah, then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, listen to this, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Sikkiu. And he said, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he, so Saul prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that night, uh, all the day and all that night. Thus, it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? All right, bear with me. I know this is like one of the weirdest stories, right? So Saul sends messengers to kill David. They start prophesying. That word can actually mean even singing praises of God. Maybe they're foretelling certain things that might happen or they're praising God. A second time, third time, the fourth time, it's now Saul's turn. He goes and he starts prophesying. Now, by the way, I find this interesting. Uh, David goes to Samuel. We haven't seen Samuel since the anointing. It's kind of like Samuel anointed David. It's like, hey, peace out. Good luck, man. Like leaves. Now, David goes to Samuel. He's like, Samuel, (laughs) like Saul's after me. And you see, like, what would you do? Like, ever since you anointed anointed me, this guy's been trying to kill me. Like, this is what's going on. So Samuel's there helping David. Now, these prophets or these messengers start prophesying. Saul starts prophesying. Uh, If this brings some sort of flashback to your mind of, like, memory, if you've been with us, if you've been with us in 1 Samuel, this should be like, hey, this sounds really familiar. Sounds incredibly familiar. Here's what actually is happening. I think this is fascinating. This is the same story being repeated, but in a tragic kind of format. Let me put this up here just so you can kind of see this. Tim Chester in his book on First Samuel wrote about this. I found this incredibly helpful. Throw it up here. In chapters 9 through 11, when Saul was rising to kingship, look what happened. This is what happened in order. He comes to Ramah. He comes to a well and asks for direction to find Samuel. Maybe you remember this. He prophesies with a group of prophets. The people marvel, and they, they said the same phrase, is Saul also among the prophets? And then the spirit comes on Saul and invites and invests him with authority. Really interesting, like this is the flow. This is like Saul's rise to being the king. Like, oh my gosh, look at this guy. He's prophesying. Maybe is Saul among the prophets? They ask that in a pause of light. Notice in this story, they're asking this like in a mockery type of way. Is Saul also among the prophets? He's naked day and night, just prophesying. This is not like they actually. Like, oh, maybe he's one of the prophets. This is like the same phrase they used when they actually thought maybe he's a prophet. Now it's like they're mocking him. Is Saul among the prophets? Remember that? Remember that when we thought that? Remember when you thought that guy was among the prophets? He actually puts it now, I don't know if you can see it up here. Tell me if you guys can see it up here, the, the second half. So it's the same story being repeated in this kind of tragic comedy sort of way. Saul comes to Roma, like number one. He comes to well and asks for directions to find Samuel, same thing. He prophesies with a group of prophets, yeah? People joke, is Saul among the prophets? And then number five, it's different. The spirit comes on Saul, oh wait, did I say that right? Yeah, and divests, he divests, instead of invests, he divests him of his clothes. So it's like the same story being repeated. It's basically the unraveling of Saul. It's like, just like we saw Saul on the rise becoming king. God's trying to make it incredibly clear. Look it. He's obviously not the king. He's not the anointed one. That's David. You see, like, this is like the unraveling of Saul's life. It's just kind of falling apart. The same thing's happening in the same order, but it's also just leading to like his surmise. It's, this is not a good thing. If you're wondering, like I was, like, and here's a few thoughts I wrote down, like, why is it significant that Saul's prophesied? I wrote these three thoughts down. It's the unraveling of Saul. God's showing him, you're not in control. You're not in control. You're going to harm. You're going to hurt. You're going to prophesy. You're not in control. And then God is going to be glorified regardless. If you're like, looking, at it, why, why is he doing this? You know what? You're not in control. I'm going to be glorified regardless. This reminds me of obviously Balaam and Balak, where Balaam is you know, paid money by Balak to curse the people of Israel, but ever, instead he just prophesies over them and speaks blessing over them. God's like, you're not in control, Saul. You have one will to hurt and harm. I have another will to bless and he's prophesying over David. So I love there's all like, different tactics. Jonathan's tactic, Michael's tactic. Samuel's like, all right, we're gonna fill them with the spirit and we're gonna mess some things up right now. All right, but we see just three loyal friends with David. That's the story of, of, of the first chapter 19. Now chapter 20, we'll focus more on this. Now we see like this deep connection between Jonathan and David even more so. So uh, we'll pick off in chapter 20, bring our second point, just stay with me. Second point is this. Number two, we see vulnerable friends. They're loyal but listen, a good friend must be vulnerable with where they're at. Look at verse chapter 20 verse one. It says, "Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah, and he came and said before Jonathan, "What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life?" And Jonathan said to him, "Far from it, you shall not die." Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. I want you to see kind of the dialogue happening between them. David's like, what have I done? What's my guilt? What's my sin? Like, where have I gone wrong? Now, I think David's just being incredibly open and honest. He's frustrated. Like, your dad tried to kill me several times now. What have I done wrong? By the way, this is interesting to me. David asking this question is not really normal. What have I done wrong? My first comment, probably like, your dad's crazy. Like, get your dad away from me. David does have a unique perspective, and and maybe he's just asking it flippantly, but I do think there's something like, what have I done wrong? Like, what's going on? Why is your dad chasing me? What, What is my sin in this? It's crazy because my first inclination is not normally to ask, What have I done wrong? It's usually, What have they done wrong? There's something in David that he's like, He's also inviting this in, like, like, Hey, Jonathan, help me understand. He's inviting Jonathan to speak into this moment and saying, Jonathan, what am I not seeing right now? What is my sin in this moment? Here's what I mean by vulnerable friends. By vulnerable friends, I say, Do you have someone that you invite into your life to speak into you? Listen, this is so key. Is there anyone in your life you're like, Hey, listen, what is my sin? Are there some things in my life you see that I don't see? Is there something in me that I'm just not aware of? I have some blind spots. What are those blind spots? Like, no one really likes to do this. Let's be honest. No one's like, hey, man, some of my biggest mistakes. But there's something actually really beautiful saying, hey, I'm sure I have blind spots. What is my sin? What is my guilt? Show me my blind spots. Church, I really want you to hear this. There has to be, there needs to be someone in your life. And I know this might not be everyone at every moment, but someone you trust someone you care about deeply and say, hey, can you reveal to me what my sin is? What are some blind spots in my life that you see in me? Or some maybe unhealthy patterns or ideas or beliefs. Can you please speak into that? Please listen. This is key to a true and meaningful relationship. Are you vulnerable to someone? Do you give them an open door policy? Do you say, hey, like nothing's off limits. Go ahead and speak to me. What have I done? That is fascinating to me. Notice David's like, his openness. He goes, I'm just a step away from death. Just that phrase, he's obviously fearful, he's broken, he finds uh, Jonathan's moment, like a safe place, I can go to him. You did to know how I'm really thinking. I'm really thinking I'm on do- death's doorstep. Like, I'm terrified. I'm a step away from death. That phrase obviously, like, got me. I don't know if you, when I was reading through that, maybe you read it like, man, what a powerful phrase. I'm a step away from death. I mean, is that not all of us? Is not life so fragile that we have to realize that I'm just a step from death? You know, in Psalm 90, Moses wrote one Psalm, that's Psalm 90, and Moses wrote, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. There is something about this saying, There's something about this phrase that is so, I think, beautiful and helpful. Like, God, help me realize that my life is very fragile. I, too, am a step away from death. It's what James says in James 4.14. He says, you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I love this. I love what he says here. You do not know what will happen tomorrow. What, what is life? That question is so powerful. What is life? How, if you had to answer that, what is life? His answer su- surprises me. What is life? It's a vapor. It's a puff of smoke. It's here one moment and gone the next. This is something I think we should kind of keep close to us. I think something very helpful in my walk with the Lord in my life is just realizing that like I'm, I'm not impenetrable. I, I, I'm very fragile. I, I know that there's a step between me and eternity, I don't always know that, but I feel like from a young age, that reality of heaven and hell, that reality of just eternity kind of lingers. If you talk to people, you're like, wow, when you, it's just so crazy, you know, just going through life. I've done a lot of funerals for people even like younger than me, which is so bizarre. And when you sit there and you go, oh my gosh, they're so young. This makes no sense. They should not be here. No one should be here right now but it reminds me of this, the same phrase David realizes. He's like, my life is like this vapor. I'm just a step away from death. I love what Adrian Rogers, a pastor says. He says, death is only a faint heartbeat away, only a heartbeat, only a step. Put your hand up there. Do you feel that little heartbeat? That's all there is between you and death, only a step. There, there's such this vulnerability in being communicated between David and Jonathan. He's like, he's like, what have I done? What's my sin? Speaking to me, like, what do you see that I don't see? I I feel like I'm on death's doorstep. Like, just a step away. He's just being completely open and honest. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up when I say vulnerable. Um, I think there's there's a difference between being transparent and being vulnerable. I love how one author talked about this, Andrew Marin. He says this, when we say someone is being transparent, listen to this. We mean they're not attempting to hide anything. They're being transparent. You're not hiding anything. When we say someone is being vulnerable, though, there's inherent risk involved an extension of trust that leaves open the possibility that the vulnerable person may be hurt. See, David is saying, what's my sin? What's my guilt? He's leaving open the possibility that Jonathan can actually say something really difficult to him. Now, there's not anything, but he's, like, he's making himself vulnerable to that moment. Here's all oh, I'm bringing this up today. Um, a lot of people want to be transparent. Like, hey, here's what I'm going through. Here's what happened. Here's what I did last night. Oh, thanks for being transparent. But are you being vulnerable? Are you saying, hey, speak into me now? Not just, here's what I did. But actually like, what do you see in me? What's my sin? What's my guilt? I need you to actually give me insight now into this. There is a vulnerability between David and Jonathan that's very unique in this conversation. And I want to pick back up, which leads to number three. We're going to also see this deep humility. They're humble friends. There's like this humble kind of conversation going on. So they're vulnerable. They're humble. Number three, look at verse four. Verse four, here's what Jonathan says. Jonathan said to David, listen to this. Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon. And I should not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked uh, leave of me to, to, to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, he says, then know that harm is determined by him. "'Therefore deal kindly with your servant, "'for you have brought your servant "'into a covenant of the Lord with you. "'But if there's guilt in me,' listen to this, "'if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself, "'for why should you bring me to your father?' "'And Jonathan said, "'Far be it from you. "'If I knew that it was determined by my father "'that harm should come to you, would I not tell you?' "'Then David said to Jonathan, "'Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly?' And Jonathan said to David, "Come, let us go into the field." So they both went out into the field. They're about to cook up a plan. Now, just bear with me. This is a really interesting story. Like your dad's going to kill me. He's like, "Far be it from you." Jonathan's still not really there yet for some reason. I don't know. I'm a little confused by that. Jonathan's still like, "Ah, my dad's not going to kill." You. He would have told me by now. Mm. So Jonathan's like, still kind of like trying to dialogue with you, like, "Calm down." He's like, "I don't know, maybe being that friend, like, calm down, calm down." He would tell me, "Don't you worry about it." But there is something that David says that is fascinates me. There's a couple things. One verse, and we saw. In verse four, Jonathan says, "Whatever you say, I'm going to do it." What a good friend! That's crazy humility. Whatever you say, I'm going to do it. They're about to t- cook up a plan in just a second. But notice what David does as well. David in verse eight says something really interesting. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. All right, let me just stop there. This should not be your life first. Okay, this is not a good life first right here. <laughs> like, look at that verse. If there's sin in me, kill me. Just kill me yourself. I don't want your dad to do it. Just kill me yourself. And someone's like, "Oh, that's my life verse. How'd you know that First for Samuel twenty? This is crazy. But here's here's what we do see. Again, he's just like. I'm going to be completely open, honest, humble, and vulnerable before you. Like, I I want you, I'm I'm going to open myself up to you. Like, I want you to speak into me. I want you to speak into this. I'm giving you permission. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 13, I love this verse. It says, Exhort one another daily while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin there's this idea where in Hebrews saying, hey, you need to encourage one another daily. You need to speak life. You need to speak words of encouragement. You need to challenge. You need to do all of that. Why? Because it's very easy for our hearts to be deceived. It's very easy for our hearts to grow cold towards God. It's very easy for our hearts to just kind of wander. And he goes, exhort one another daily while you still have this day. While well, it's still called today. Lest the deceitfulness of sin just harden you, blind you. Listen, we need that friend that he's like, hey, just, is there sin in me? say it, call me out, you know, you perform the action, you, you kill me yourself, but he's basically saying, like, you challenge me, what, what is it, what am I not seeing again? Now, this is so interesting to me. This is what Proverbs talks about in Proverbs uh, chapter 27. He says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. There is something about saying, hey, friends, say the hard thing, do the hard thing. Like, I, I, I need you, I need the, the, there's something about the kisses of an enemy they're deceitful. The wounds of a friend, they bring life. Meaning, if you have someone who constantly just flatters like, no, no, that's not a big deal. That's sin. Everyone does that sin. That's not really a friend. That's an enemy. That's someone who flatters you, never challenges you, just kind of pampers you. They won't say the hard thing. That's more of an enemy. It's weird. I'm not going to try to name shows because I don't know the names. But once in a while, it's not my home. But there's like some reality TV shows on, and you kind of hear the dialogue. And I laugh because I like I hear the dialogue sometimes between like a certain woman in like a workplace. And there's always like this: No, no, you did nothing wrong. It's their fault. Then they go to the other girl. It's all their fault. I'm like, you deceiving, stab stabbed. Like I don't know. It's just crazy. I watch the dialogue that's happening. I'm like, you're not a good friend. You're like flattering. You're kissing. You know the the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. But there's something about when someone's like, no, no, I'm going to say the hard thing. Like, I'm going to do the hard thing. Um, There's something about saying, I give you permission to do that. Listen, I would say this. Again, we need to have that friend who can say and do that hard thing. Here's what I want to say. Sometimes at church, it is weird. Sometimes people do wear masks, and it can be frustrating. I think the number one complaint sometimes is like, they're all hypocrites at church. They wear a mask. It's not the true self. I would say, take off that mask. And I'd say, one, we need to exhort. We need to encourage. We need to speak life into. But two, the wounds of a friend bring life. There's something about also saying the hard thing, doing the hard thing. I want to say this. I hope you expect to be challenged. I hope when you come here on Sunday or when you meet with someone, just expect to be challenged. Don't be frustrated by it. Let me say this. Don't be frustrated if someone says, hey, I love you. I care for you. Like, What are you doing? Don't push that person away. Don't give them the stiff arm. I can, and some, in some ways, I think church, can, it's like sad. It's mutual. Sure, people can come wear a mask, but also at the same time, maybe we're afraid to say the hard thing, do the hard thing. Like I get it. There's a challenge sometimes. Like you only get people for like an hour every week. Like you want to be very encouraging, make sure the message is inspiring. Like you know, come on, just say positive things. And like I get that. But what about what about the wounds of a friend that bring life? What about like I gotta say the hard thing here? Because in reality, if I just pamper, if I just flatter, if I just say the nice thing and I avoid the hard things, that actually might lead to your destruction. Like we gotta say the hard things. Are you guys with me? We gotta. That's like no one's looking forward to this. That'd be kind of weird. Like I can't wait. I can't wait to just you know. Give them like bash them in with my words. Like no one wants to do that. That's not the hope of it. That's not the goal of it. But there's the side of like, man, I love you. I care for you. Why avoid this thing in your life that is actually doing harm to you or your relationships or your marriage or your walk with God? Why avoid that? Like, let me speak into expect that in some ways. This is what the author goes on to say, in Proverbs 27 to 17 Right? As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. That, that's just the idea. Like, hey, do we want to get sharper here? Do we want to get stronger here? Do, do or do we just want to get dull? Do you want to come in here and never really be challenged, only hear the positive things, the best is yet to come, and just all those cliches? Or do we actually say, you know what? Maybe we should challenge. Maybe we should press into. Maybe we should say the hard thing. I'm saying there should be this, this balance of how do we exhort, how do we speak life, but how do we also say the hard things? There's a deep humility, I believe, happening between them. Now, we'll keep going. They come up with this weird plan, and it's a lot of text, so bear with me. This brings us to my fourth point, because they have something in common, so I just call this kindred friends. They have something in common. Look, look if you would, at verse 12. We'll read their plan. Verse 12, uh, chapter 20, verse 12. It says, Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well Uh, If he's well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm? The Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever." when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Don't forget me, David. Don't forget my family. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Verse 18, then Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark, and behold, I will send the boy, this is the servant, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then then you are to come then you are to come, for as the Lord lives it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go. For the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. They come up with this plan basically to say, hey, if my dad wants to kill you, I'm gonna shoot the arrows uh, far. And that means you gotta get out of here. If my dad doesn't wanna kill you, I'll shoot him closer and off to the side. And that means come back home, you're safe. This is like the plan they have because they don't want people to know they're talking because again, Jonathan's committing treason. Now this is a weird little bizarre thing. But in this, I want you to notice, Jonathan's like preaching to David. Uh, Several things are mentioned here, but he's basically, I'm gonna be committed to you, David. Now you be committed to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be faithful to your fa- family and your house forever. Be faithful to my family. This is fulfilled really in a really cool way in 2 Samuel 9 when you read about Mephibosheth. It's a really cool story that we'll see later, so I won't even get to that. But David's going to fulfill his promise to Jonathan when it comes to Mephibosheth. It's an awesome story. But we'll keep moving. In this like, story, or in this like, kind of like what they're coming up with, this plan, uh, Jonathan is, in a sense, preaching to him in a really unique way. Here's what I've, I-, I noticed. Nine different times the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is mentioned. If you look down, capital L-O-R-D, mentioned nine times. Y-H-V-H, Y-H-W-H, is the name of God that you didn't really say or use. But it's not lowercase Lord, like Adonai, it's Lord. Like Yahweh, God's name. This is the core of their friendship. If when I say kindred friends, here's what I'm saying. They have the most important thing in common. What does he say in verse 23? Just to make sure it's really clear because we just heard a lot. Verse 23, he said it this way the Lord is between you and me forever. I want you to understand this is what they had in common. He's like, the Lord is between us. Listen, friendship has to have a point. Friendship has to be about something. Friendship has to have something in common that binds it together. You know what that is for David and Jonathan? It's the Lord. They have the most, like, here's the thing. They should be enemies. You guys get this, right? Like, if you write this story down on paper, they should be enemies. Jonathan's the prince to be. Like, Jonathan, this was your, if David's not alive, you're the next king. Jonathan should hate David. But what do they have between them? The Lord. The Lord is between you and me forever. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, nine times in in this little sermon he preaches. The point of this is saying we have the most important thing in common. Our friendship is about something bigger than the throne. It's about God. This is so beautiful to me because obviously you know this. There's people in life we should be enemies with in theory when in reality, because we have the Lord, we can be best of friends like meaning there are people we're told by the world like you should be enemies with this person or this group or that can i tell you christians can be friends with anyone and everyone who and we say because we have the lord that binds us like what i love is when i get on a mission trip or when i travel or i meet someone if i meet a christian in a different country and it's been so fun i've like in like a week become best friends with people like in hungary you meet someone you're talking to them and you're like oh my gosh we have so many things in common this is so crazy because we have like the lord in common and even though I've never grew up with your life experiences in El Salvador or in Haiti, and even though I've never experienced that, like for this week, we have like such a deep bond in friendship. Why? Because we have the most important thing in common that is the Lord. My point is just being, it doesn't matter where you're from, what tribe, what nation, what country, it doesn't matter if you have God in common, you have the most important thing in common and their friendship was built on something. It was built on the Lord, the most important thing. My point is this, if you want to have deep friendships with someone, you have to get past the surfacey conversation. You have to get past the fantasy football conversation. You have to get past like, oh, the weather. Like You have to get past that. And you have to find the most stable thing, and that is the Lord. You have to find that rock to build your, your relationship on. That is the Lord. There's something about just saying, if you have friends, but you never talk about God, eternity, life, meaning, purpose, this is a really shallow relationship and God is inviting you into a deeper relationship. Talk about the Lord. Talk about this covenant, this bond between that you have with God, that they have with God. There's something so beautiful about that. My point is, listen, I love friends that I can play basketball with, I can do things, but I, I want to be well-rounded. Like, I don't want to just have like a shallow, I want to have friends where like, yes, we have other interests and things in common, but it is so much deeper. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote about the when he wrote about friendship, he said something I thought so profound. He says the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, What? You two? I thought I was the only one. Right? That is so true. When you find something in comic, like, what you two? I thought it was just me. It's like when you're a Christian and you meet another Christian in your like work area, like you're a Christian too? Oh my gosh. Like this is this crazy bond that can happen. It is so sweet. And this is what a friendship is built on something. And I'd say make it the most important something. Every friendship is built on something. But do you have friendships built on the most important thing? And that, that is the Lord. It has to be built on Him. I, I love this because I'll just keep quoting from the same chapter. C.S. Lewis says, "Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can travel, can can have no fellow travelers. Like if you don't have the Lord, he goes, you're going nowhere. There's no fellow travelers. If you're just like, if your whole thing is like, I just want friends, but it's not built on something, no one's gonna be your friend. <laughs> He's like, it has to be built on something. It has to be built on the most important thing." And you can see the Lord is between me and you forever. That's how David kind of ends the speech. It's between you and me forever. This is what our friendship is. built. There's a kindredness. There's a a similarity. There's a common belief, common bond, common vision for the life. I have the Lord. You have the Lord. This is the most important thing. I just want to say like this. Again, if you want to get to depth and meaningful relationships, you have to leave that small talk and get to the most important things. And that's usually conversations around the Lord. Yes. And then number five, lastly, is this. We'll end with a story. We see kindred friends. Now we're gonna see selfless friends. Pick up in verse 24. Verse twenty four, we'll read basically what they just talked through. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food, just like they talked about. The king sat on a seat, as at other times on the seat, by the by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner, his general, sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean, surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for a clan hold to sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. This is what they talked about. That was their plan. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, his son. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Don't talk to your kids this way. Um, Do I not, this is bad about his wife. It's terrible. Do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? you've You've chosen David over me. And to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Remember Saul, he wants his son to be the next king. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, "'Why should he be put to death? "'What has he done?' "'But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him.'" He's just trying to kill everybody now with that spear. So Jonathan knew that his father... This is the funniest phrase I read. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. That's what it took. That's really three times he tries to kill David. He throws his spear now, You must be really trying to kill David. Oh my gosh. Verse 34. "'And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, "'and he ate no food the second day of the month.'" Uh, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with, with him, a little boy, that servant. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master But the boy knew nothing. He doesn't know what's going on. And Jonathan and David knew the matter. Now this is kind of, they break protocol. Verse 40. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. Go back. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring Forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So remember the story, I'm going to shoot the arrows. If it goes beyond, that means, you know, my dad's going to kill you, run. But they broke protocol. They end up seeing each other, and they're just crying. They're grieving. They're going. I can't believe this is over. There's going to be only one other time David and Jonathan see each other in chapter 23, 16. And it says, Jonathan strengthened David in the Lord, like he's encouraging him in the Lord. So they are going to see each other one other time. So the next 10 to 15 years, David's on the run, sees Jonathan one other time in a couple of chapters. We'll read that. Uh, the reason why I'm bringing this up and what you see is there's a selflessness that Jonathan has to make. There's a, there's a selfless decision he makes. Basically Saul called it out. He goes, "It's either me or David, who are you going to choose?" And he's like, "I'm choosing David." Right? And the idea was like, "You're not going to put you're going to put your your this man over your own family, over your own blood? You're going to leave your father and mother and follow this guy?" He's like, "Yeah, I am." He had to make a selfless act. An act that eventually lead to his death. The crazy thing, by the way, just fast forward. Jonathan is incredibly loyal to David and even to his dad. Jonathan's going to fight by his dad's side and actually die by his dad's side. It's, it's crazy. Jonathan, in the story, when you read Jonathan, you go, man, this guy is a wonderful example in, in so many ways of what it means to follow Jesus, to give it all up, to follow him, to leave it all. It's unbelievable. But it's also loyal to saying, I'm also going to be around those who want nothing to do uh, with the true king. I'll also come alongside them. Jonathan is mind-blowing to me in that way. But here's why I'm bringing this up. He's incredibly selfless. He knew from this day on, his life would also be on the hunt. He knew that his head would be on the chopping block. He knew that it's possible he would die because of his decision to support David. That is incredibly selfless. Now, it's really interesting, right? There's like these little phrases in that, what we just read, that just remind me of the gospel. You're going to leave your father? Choose this guy? Jesus says in Matthew chapter ten thirty seven, he who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. There is this idea, and here's what I'm trying to bring out, because I know that needs some context. There is this idea that it's like, if I want to follow Jesus, in some ways, I have to say, Jesus, you are supreme, that my love for you is so great, that you'll be my number one pursuit, my number one love. Even if my father and mother say, what are you doing following this Jesus thing? I'm going to follow you. Even if I'm disowned from my family, which happens in many countries, to individuals who decide to follow Jesus— People say, how dare you decide to follow Jesus? I want nothing to do with you. If you're going to follow this Jesus. Jonathan is showing us, he goes, no, no, this is the true king. He's worthy to be followed. I'm going to leave my place of royalty and authority and follow this man. Jonathan knew what he's doing. Remember when Jonathan met David last week? He, he gives him his armor. He gives him his clothing. He gives him his sword. He's basically saying, hey, everything's yours. I'm not the next king. You're the next king. Here's my sword. Again, I'm I'm making myself vulnerable to you. Like you have the right to execute judgment. It's not me. It's you. It's your sword. There is a sense of him saying, I'm going to leave it all and follow you. I'm going to leave it all even when it means your life is now being pursued and people hate you, they're going to hate me also. Jesus said, if people hate me, they're going to hate you also. There is this idea of Jonathan of what it really looks like to follow Jesus. Jonathan is a wonderful example of that. Jonathan's a wonderful example to say, you know what? Jesus is worth it. I will follow him. Jesus is the true king of kings. I am not. I am not the king. I'm not the next king. I'm not the true king. Jesus says, I will lay down my life for his life. I will help him. This is what Jesus described about friendship. Listen to this. John 15, 13. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. This is Jonathan and Jonathan is such a picture of Jesus in this way as well. Here's what I love about Jonathan. Everyone's confused about Jonathan. When I read books on this, and I, I love reading different authors and getting perspectives, they're all like, Jonathan is such a picture of us to Jesus, leaving it all on him. But Jonathan is also a wonderful picture of Jesus to us. Meaning, I came down. I laid down my life. I will give up my life. I'll put my head on the chopping block so you can live. Because ultimately, David's going to live and Jonathan's going to die. And all I'm trying to bring up with this is Jonathan's a wonderful picture of the gospel. Leave it all, follow him, Jesus. But it's also a picture of what God did for us. First, God left it all and pursued us. God says, I'm going to lay it all down. I'm going to give up my life so you can live, which is what happened to Jonathan. This is what friends, he says, greater love has no one than this, than one who lays his life down for his friends. This, Jonathan has shown us what a friend looks like. You see, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. The one who would lay down his life for us. The one who said, it should be your head on the chopping block, but instead, I'll lay down my life. It should be you who experiences judgment, but I'll be judged for you on your behalf. Jonathan is that picture of us to Jesus and Jesus us. I love this about Jonathan. He's just that selfless friend. Jesus said in John 15, 15, two verses later, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You see, what I love about this friendship is it is such a great reflection of just, man, what a friend you and I have in Jesus. We're not just his servants. We are. Jesus is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We are his servants. But the fact that he says, I'm going to call you friends. The fact that he says, I'm going to elevate you to this level of friends and I'm going to lay down my life for my friends. I'm going to give it all for you. I want you to know you have a friend in Jesus. You are beloved. You are not alone. When you're in dark moments, when you feel like you're fleeing from your life and everything's against you, Oh, what a friend you have in Jesus. The one who will lay down his life for you. The one who will walk with you side by side. The one who will weep and grieve with you. The one who will comfort you when you're broken. You have a friend in Jesus. Amen? The reason why I I feel like this is not an announcement for me, the reason why we fight so much for community is a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people have have not experienced deep friendship, deep relationship, and it's experienced in the context over the word of God, food often, scriptures, and other people. And I just want to invite you into this because this is not just announced. It's a community group weekend. I'm very thankful the text lines up with it, which is, trust me, it's not planned. Um, I wish I was that creative. But I look at this and say, Lord, thank you. Provide strong friendships, strong relationships. Listen, here's what I want to do. All of those are leading a group this year. They're sacrificing time, energy, money, many of them. And so we just want to pray over our group leaders. Um, and we want to pray over our alpha table leaders because they're about to enter into the season. They're like, I want to build community. I want to fight for this and we want you to, one, pray over them, two, see them, so you know who you can talk to and know, like, hey, I'd love to be part of your community group or your Alpha Table. Um, So can we do this? If you are a community group leader or if you're an Alpha Table leader, if you don't mind just coming up here really quick, we just want to pray over you guys. Don't be shy. Come on up, because we just want to pray over you in this next season, the next three months. Hey, church, why don't you give up for all those who are, you know, sacrificing their time to lead groups in this way? Sweet. Come on up, guys. Yeah, keep going. There we go. Come on, Reggie. Oh, gosh, so many. This is great. Oh, are all of you table leaders? Hey. All right. This is great. Um, awesome. So you guys can see up here. These are some of our house group leaders and some of our alpha table leaders. Um, if you would, please come say hi. The table leaders will be in the back left. Alpha table leaders will be in the back right. Um, I want to highlight we have a new group, John and Linda, doing a married couple. If you guys want to raise your hand. Hey. Hey. Um, there's also, just whether it's an all-guys group, all-girls group, mixed group, um, we try to just have variety. We'd love for you to join and be part of one. But let we just pray over them right now? If you guys would, just bow your heads, extend your hands to them. Let's pray a blessing over them. Let's just pray for God's wisdom and direction. And so, Father, we just want to come to you right now and do that. We thank you so much for those who decided to just fight for community to build relationships, to open up their homes, to spend money on people uh, and and bless them. And God, I just ask that you would just empower all the leaders up here. For all the, the table leaders for Alpha who will be sitting with people who don't know you or maybe don't believe in you or frustrated at Christians. God, give them wisdom, help them listen, help them be still and know that you're God. Help them speak the right word at the right moment, God. Lead them by your spirit. Jesus, I just pray for just blessing over the families, the homes, the individuals, the coffee shops or restaurants, wherever they're going to meet, that Jesus, they would be fruitful and meaningful. And Lord, that we would get beyond what we just, what we talked about today, that there would be deep vulnerability and humility and loyalty. And just that there'd be the selflessness, God, when it comes to the friendship and that our common bond is you, Jesus. And we just say, thank you. Jesus, you draw all men and women to yourself. And we say, thank you. So we look to you now. Bless the leaders here. I just ask that you bless the conversations after, in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.